Hello, Giles here. And knowing that we have a family audience and the purple people often include some very young people, just to say that today's episode does include some language that some people may find uncomfortable or offensive. Hello, welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. I think, hopefully by now, if you are a regular listener, you'll know exactly what this podcast is about. If you don't and have stumbled across us, welcome. We are here, and by we, I mean I, Susie Dent, and Giles Branderis, my podpanion, as I like to call him. We talk uh, lovingly about words, and we choose a subject every single week to explore when it comes to um, their particular lexicon and other types of language. Use, but it's quite free flowing and it involves not a fair few, or a fair few, I should say, of Giles's personal anecdotes, which um, are always, always entertaining. Um, hello, Giles. It also involves me interrupting you to ask you questions like, why did you say it is I rather than it's me? Me. And my well, companion. The vernacular or the more informal sense would have been me. It's me rather than it's I. You wouldn't say it's I, would you? Because you've got it is. You've got, sorry, it's as a kind of contraction and that's itself informal. But it is I, the is here is an um, auxiliary verb. And I think, okay, it's me. You wouldn't say... No, I'm just asking because it sounded, yes. al- it sounded almost Odd. correct. It sounded formal, um, <laughs> you know, and it almost sounded as though you were a sort of Greek figure coming on. It is I, Atticus, I. king of the, you know... Yeah, exactly. It's me. Well, I may be doing what a lot of people do, is hyper-correcting themselves because they feel like me is too slangy. So they put, you know, the king gave it to my husband and I, when actually it should be my husband and me. Or worse, uh, and I think we're all guilty of this, um, the king gave it to my husband and myself, because that sounds even more formal, which is, again, wrong. So strictly speaking, I is it, me is, uh, it is I. I think it is I is probably okay, but it's me would definitely be more casual. And we are quite casual on this podcast. Good. Well, it is I. It is I, Giles, <laughs> who is listening to you, Susie, uh, with awe. Good. Um, good. So we talk about words and language. And the other day, we had fun, didn't we, exploring words that have been in, conjured up for the first time in the 20th century. And I don't know how far we'd got. But I think we got through the first few decades. Yeah. And I think we've about reached the 1940s. Exactly. Um, so almost, well, that is the decade in which I was born. But I imagine most of the words that are in the dictionary of the 1940s relate in some way to the Second World War, which dominated that decade, began in 1939 and didn't end in some parts of the world until 1946. So is that true of of much of the the language of the 1940s? Yes, I think so. As you say, pivotal decade. They, I mean, there were some horrific things that happened in the 40s, not least the two atom bomb explosions at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then, you know, the establishment of, well, not the establishment, but I suppose the birth of an ideological, well, sort of barrier, really, between East and West. And yeah, lots of incredibly important things happened. Yeah, I mean, the origins of what later came to be known as the the Cold War, which dominated our childhoods, where the the Eastern Bloc, Eastern Europe, was quite separate from, and and the Soviet Union, as it was, quite separate from the the Western Bloc. Yeah. Yeah. Time of extraordinary change. Well, give us some of those words from the 1940s. 
fortress if you can. Yes. Do you know what I was doing? I, if I sounded a little bit distracted, I was just checking because I am that sort of person where I just think, it is I. Should, have I led everybody astray? And I'm supposed to be the expert. So it is I, I'm happy to say, is the correct formal expression of that, but not many people use it. And so it's best to stick to it is me in a conversation. But both of them are okay. Anyway, back to the 1940s. And should we talk about some of the some of the uh, the terms that emerged in this period? I would love to. Give me some examples. Okay. Well, you will know about the origin of the bikini, for example. I do, the bikini atoll. And this is yes. this something to do, in fact, with the atom bomb explosions that were so devastating when dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I, I feel the Bikini Atoll, which is sort of 1947, 1948, the mm. shape of it, the look of the Bikini Atoll was similar to the look of the the garment or garments, the top and the bottom, that feature in a bikini. Am, am I right? Is that why the Bikini Atoll is famous? Yes. Not so much the shape as such in terms of, you know, whether it actually reflected the Bikini Atoll, which is in the Marshall Islands. And it's 1946, um, but more the explosive effect. And oh. it was coined in French a year after. And uh, yes, it, it is, was really like the explosion itself to, you know, the, the sort of almost scandalous discarding of modesty with the bikini. So it was, yeah, pretty, pretty huge in its time. But as you say, I suppose that's a slightly more lighthearted product of those two horrible, horrible bombs. But yeah, often surprising. Are you a bikini girl? I was a bikini girl. I don't really get to go and lay out in the sunshine these days. How about you? Are you a bikini man? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm uh, I'm a cover-up everything. I, You're a budgie smuggler man. I am. No, I'm, I'm back to the kind of swimming costumes that men wore up until the 1930s, I think, which were sort of one-piece costumes, rather like ladies. <laughs> mayo. Um, the mayo, as they say in French. Covered, okay. up, covered up absolute maximum. Sadly, my body is not a thing of great beauty. Um, no, let's face it. Don't believe that. There we are. So we've got the bikini. Give me some more. Well, shall I lighten the mood somewhat and give you from 1949, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? I don't believe it. I, I, you've got it wrong. That's a word I'm sure that was invented for Mary Poppins. No. Was it really earlier than that? Was it not invented for Mary Poppins, the film, in the 1960s? It was popularised by Mary Poppins in 1964. Wow. But it first appeared slightly different guys, as the title of a song by Parker and Young in the 1940s. And in fact, the two songwriters brought a copyright infringement suit in 1965 against the makers of Mary Poppins. Ooh. And because of there were earlier uses of the word that were sworn to in affidavits, the judge actually ruled against them because they, they, they said, look, this was you know pretty much in common currency, so they did not steal it from you. And it's really interesting that because people often wonder, can you copyright language? Can you actually protect a word that has been created? You know, Is it subject to the same kind of trademarks? It's an interesting discussion. But anyway, yes, it was, um, I mean, it's been punned on endlessly in um, newspaper headlines, hasn't it? But certainly popularised by Mary Poppins. Brilliant. Well, I didn't realise it was that old. 1949, you tell me. Yeah. Give me some more. I'm loving all this. Okay. What about a whistle-stop tour, which is really one, a, a journey with lots of brief stops, isn't it? Where you, you just give a very brief look around and it's used metaphorically 
to say, well, today in our podcast, we're going to do a whistle-stop tour of the 1940s and 50s. But originally, it comes from a US sense of the word, which was a small station or town uh, where trains don't stop unless they're requested to do so by a signal given on a whistle. Um, and it was then applied to political campaigning during the run-up to the 1948 presidential election. Um, President Truman told a, a crowd at a railroad station that before this campaign is over, I expect to visit every whistle stop in the United States. Great. I didn't know that. Mm. Harry S. Truman, you of course know what the S stands for, don't you? I don't. Well, if I did, I've forgotten. No, well, you, I'm sure you have forgotten this because I'm sure you would have known it in your time. It doesn't stand for anything. It was oh. just put in because people are supposed to have a, a middle initial, you know? You yeah, think yeah. American presidents have a middle initial. But Harry S. Truman, well, his name was Harry Truman. And, and oh, the S how was put in just to you know, make it sound good. Did you ever think of doing the same? Well, unfortunately, I do have a middle name and it's Daubeny. Oh, that's lovely. And so I keep quite quiet about that. Oh, do you think it's quite lovely? I think it sounds a bit fey. It's very noble. It is rather, isn't it? Giles Daubeny Brand. <laughs> mm, that's true. What What is your middle name? You have told me before. Uh, Francesca. Oh, I love that. Yes. I love Francesca. Oh, uh, I, I may call you Fran from now on in. I'm not sure I like no? Fran. Frankie, maybe? Not sure I'm a Frankie. Cheska? Oh, no, I'm not sure Ches about Frankie. Well, Francesca. Yes. Che oh, Cheska's, Cheska's good. Cheska. It's very wow, exotic. Very good. I'll give you one more from the 1940s, and that is red brick, used to denote a university that was founded in a large industrial city in the late 19th or early 20th century. And it's used often condescendingly, isn't it? I think it used to be. Uh, you're absolutely right that there were the old universities, the traditional universities, the Oxford and Cambridges, the places like Durham, and these red brick universities, because I suppose they were built of red brick. They looked yeah. modern and shiny, and they were the new universities, red brick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think, it's not a word that's much used now, is it? No, I don't think it, it, it is really. And But I think originally it was to distinguish them from the older, more noble, as was thought, universities, you know, that are built predominantly in stone, like Oxford and Cambridge and the, you know, Edinburgh, et cetera. But anyway, that first appeared then. So that gives you sort of quite a good, well, a little bit of an overview as to just how varied the vocabulary of this time was. As you say, you've got all sorts of things happening. I mean, lots of words related to nuclear power and to computers and to space as well. Um, should, we, should we leap ahead on our whistle-stop tour to the 1950s? Yes, because I love this. Because just as I thought supercalifragilisticexpialidocious was a word from the 1940s, I'd always assumed, until you put me right, that hippie, the idea of a hippie, was very much a 1960s word. But I'm wrong, aren't I? It's much earlier than that. Yeah, and I mean, not too much earlier, but yes, 1953. But hipster, of which it is a riff, was even earlier, 1941. And I associate hipsters with the kind of cool jazz eras of Charlie Parker, etc., which is actually where the word cool itself, the adjective, was popularized. So hippie really, of course, made it into the big time in the mid-1960s, but it was around before then, for sure. And I can't wait until we have an episode where we talk about the 1960s, because you can tell me all about them. But yeah, that was that was 1950s. I was there. You were there. Well, so was I, but not I, really I was there. I aware. Was at, well, I, I was there and I was a teenager and I should really, well, I do, unfortunately, I remember it all. You're supposed not to remember it. I went, I was in California in the hippie days. Oh. I went to the Haight-Ashbury where everybody was smoking the dope 
Um, and much more recently, I went to the birthplace of Bob Marley. Uh-huh. And I remember going, and also to where he is buried, and I remember sitting by his coffin, and two elderly hippies turned up. And th- this was, you know, only a few years ago. So these were two elderly hippies who'd been hippies in the 1960s, and they came looking like proper hippies with sort of dreadlocks and uh, amusing clothes. And though smoking a joint is not allowed in a public place in Jamaica, the guards turned the other way, as for old time's sake, these two hippies were allowed to sit at the edge of the grave of Bob Marley and smoke their joints. Amazing. I love that. That That's fantastic. Well, save save the 60s for our episode on that, because I'm sure you've got lots of personal tales to tell. This was, you know, a real period of scientific innovation, but it wasn't all about progress, because it had also produced, of course, a nuclear bomb. And over the 50s, hung the cloud of almost the bomb itself. And, of course, W.H. Auden wrote The Age of Anxiety, which sort of pretty much pre warned us, I suppose, about the coming decade. Uh, On a happier note, you have Charisma, known amongst teens today as Riz. This is your personal charm or magnetism. Um, Ultimate Source, actually, is rather lovely. Its ultimate source is the Greek charisma, meaning a divine gift, which is lovely, I think. Indeed. I think in sort of Christian world, one talks about chrism, which may yeah. be a version of the same thing. I can't believe that charisma is a word from the 1950s. It must have been used before then. Or are you telling me it's used in this sense from the 1950s onwards? I mean, does charisma not appear in the dictionary before 1959? Let us have a look. Yes. So in theology, a gift, as we say, bestowed by God. And that is first recorded in the 17th century. But when it was applied in a secular way Uh, to a personal gift, if you like, that was indeed from the 1950s. How intriguing. I'm Mm. interested it's that late. Well, Ms. Dent, I say Ms. Dent, we ought to take a break. But Ms. Apparently that comes to the 1950s as well. I thought that was a much later thing, 70s or 80s even. M.S. as an appellation for a female. Really? 1952? Can this be true? Halfway between Miss and Mrs., obviously, um, didn't make real headway until the 1970s when it was vigorously championed. Can I just say, before we go to the break, that I do, if there are any purple people out there who are in charge of websites that ask for, when, when you're giving personal details, they ask you if you're a Ms. or a Mrs. or a Miss, why? Why do you need to know? Why do we need that appellation? I get I get that some people who are judges or doctors want to be recognized by that. But why do the rest of us have to go and specify? I just don't understand. It seems remarkably archaic to me. I agree with you there. I think we just have our first name and our surname. I think yeah. it's all irrelevant. But maybe there are some people who like to be called, you know, Lady This, or yeah. as you say, Judge That, or yeah. Sir Hedward Pisspot, whatever they have. They, they want... <laughs> the handle. They want the title. I I agree. Because I I don't like being called Mr. It feels a bit odd, actually. No. I mean, I get, okay, so I get that if some people do want that, but then make it optional because there are many fields that you enter online where it just, you cannot continue unless you say whether you're a Mr. or Mux is the new gender neutral one. It's It's very, very odd. Anyway, you're right. It's time for a break where I will firmly get off my high horse and reach solid ground. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. We're back. And we've been talking about words from the 1940s and the 1950s today. And there's just one more I want to ask you about, oh, yeah. Susie, before we get on to this week's correspondence, because we've had a lot of it. And this, again, surprises me how early it is. The word transplant, mm -hmm. meaning, I think, a medical transplant, because transplant as an idea must have existed before. Transplanting somebody from A to B yeah. uh, did exist I imagine, previously to the 1950s. But I think the idea of a transplant, as in the m transplanting of a body part from one human to another, mm. dates from 1951, apparently. Is that right? Well, yes. I mean, there's transplant recorded in the late 18th century when it, when it was all about a tooth, transplanting a tooth. And then internal organs came later. I think it really came into its own after Christian Barnard performed the first really successful heart transplant operation. And that was in 1967, wasn't it? But yes, widely used here. I think we're talking about, you have to remember that in the Oxford English Dictionary, you can can see a word's journey with each of its different meanings. And as you said, with charisma, you know, goes back to very, very ancient roots, but its first sense in, in the sort of riz sense that we know as today, um, as I say, that's the modern slang equivalent, that was from the 1950s. So in terms of the sense that we would know it as today, transplant indeed, 1950s as well. And speaking of transplanting teeth and roots, since you mentioned those, during the Second World War, my father had an experience that meant when he went to the dentist afterwards and when he took me to the dentist, he was fearless. When he was stationed in North Africa during the Second World War, he had a, well, a tooth that had gone bad. and He had to go to a dentist. And the only dentist he could find in somewhere like Cairo was this really, well, I, let me say, the dentistry was quite primitive because the dentist uh, put a string 
around my father's rotten tooth and the other end of the string around his doorknob and then positioned my father halfway across the room and then slammed the door. And (laughs) as the door was slammed, my father's tooth was pulled out of his mouth. And my father said it was excruciatingly painful, but it reconciled him to going to the dentist for the rest of his life because he knew it would be less uncomfortable wherever he went. Oh, that sounds dreadful. What an experience. Good story, though. A very good story. Um, Well, look, we need to get to our correspondence. Who have we heard from? Well, our first email uh, comes in from John in Texas. Do you have it there, Giles? Hi there, Susie and Giles. Words like smells can evoke memories. My father used the word palaver in regular vocabulary when I was growing up in Walsall in the 1950s and 60s. It still evokes memories of him. What is its origin? If you will allow me a bonus question, what is the origin of rigmarole, which he could have used but didn't? John in Texas. doesn't tell us where in Texas. Have you been to Texas? I haven't been to Texas, no. Oh, you must go. I know. I need to I need to explore further in the States. You do. Dallas is marvellous. Houston is marvellous. Okay, tell us about Palava. So, it's first recorded in around the 1730s when it was a long talk or a tedious discussion. And it was nautical slang, really, slang amongst sailors. And it comes from a Portuguese word, palavra, meaning a word or a speech or a talk. And because it was often, as I say, tedious, it was long, it was rambling, it was often a bit incoherent, it came to mean a palaver, a sort of fuss and a bother and an overcomplicated process. So, um, yeah, it first first appeared in the sense of a, a sort of incoherent, sometimes harangue by someone. Rigmarole is a lovely one. Um, now, we think this is a version of a Kentish dialect phrase, a ragman roll, which was around in the Middle Ages. And a ragman roll was a long list or roster. And quite often it was a document recording accusations or offences. And it may actually go back to a Viking word meaning a slanderer. And it was changed to ragman and roll just because, you know, they were more familiar to people than the original Old Norse. But then if it was a long list or a roster, again, similar idea to the palaver, it came to mean something that was heavily involved and heavily complicated, um, which is why something's called a rigmarole today. Very good. You know a lot. You know (laughs) so much that I'd like you to actually share with us. um, Oh, should we do one more letter? Forgive me. Let's do one more. Let's do one more. Hello, Susie and Giles. I recently adopted a rescue cat called Thistle, T-H-I-S-T-L-E, and we love listening to your podcast together. We particularly enjoyed learning the origins of the word thistle and how it came to be the national flower of Scotland. It suits Thistle very well because he's small and unassuming, but a wee bit spiky, and he wears a tartan collar. Thistle would like to know why non-pedigree cats are called moggies, or should that be domestic shorthairs? He also wonders why we sometimes call him Puss, Pussycat, or Kitty. Isn't Kitty a girl's name? He's a Tom, come to think of it. Why are the males called Tomcats? All the best from Bethan, 
So what's the answer to all that? Uh, well, first of all, thistle is a Germanic word. It's a distal in German. So we borrowed that from our Germanic ancestors. And yes, cats. Well, we have spoken many a time on the podcast, Giles, about how we like to take personal names and use them to describe all sorts of people and all sorts of objects. So we've, we've spoken numerous times about Jack being used as a generic Jack of all trades name, uh, Abigail for a maid, Maggie for a, a magpie which is originally a maggoty pie, actually, but nothing to do with maggots. And very much the same thing is going on here. So Moggy is a version of uh, Maggie or Margaret, first appeared in 1648. And actually a Moggy was, first of all, a young woman and later an untidily dressed woman, which tends to be the way that most nouns involving women goes. It starts off with something neutral and then it descends into a sort of either a promiscuous woman or one who is rather frowsy, always the same. Anyway, it then evolved to mean a, a scarecrow, a stuffed figure. Then it was a calf or a cow. And then much later in 1911, a cat. So it is simply a version of uh, Margaret. And similarly, um, you will know Giles, a grimalkin, uh, famously used by T.S. Eliot, a cat in which Malkin there, M-A-L-K-I-N, is simply a pet form of Maud. So we have that. The same thing is going on with the tomcat, exactly the same, and the same with kitty, I'm afraid, where it is just you. Not I'm afraid, actually. It's just the way that English has evolved. But it's all to do with our taking first names and then using them affectionately, really, for other things. Is kitty an abbreviation of Catherine or Christine or what is Catherine, it? Catherine. Yeah, I think it's Catherine mostly. Catherine. But often it's the name in itself now, isn't it? It's lovely. I love it. And would you say Grimalkin or Grimalkin? I say Grimalkin or Grimalkin, Grim, Grimalkin I think. Did I, I don't know what I said mm. before. Well, let's call um, But we don't really use it these days, do we? No, we certainly don't. Well, if you've got an amusing name for your cat that you want to share with us, or questions of any kind, do get in touch. We're devoting our 250th episode, which is coming up very soon, to your letters, your inquiries, because the podcast has been the success. It's been entirely because of you, the Purple People. So feel free to contact us. We're purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com. Now, Susie, every week you come up with three unusual, interesting words. What is in your trio this week? Okay, so I'm going to start off with two words that were mentioned actually by the lovely Stephen Fry, who is more than a national treasure in Britain, but I'm sure he's known across the world. And it was at the lovely Hay Festival, the festival at Hay on Wye, which I know you know, Giles. And it was a lovely discussion with Stephen. And we were talking about English dialect, and he mentioned two of his favourites. And one is Bishy Barney Bee. In fact, we should do a whole episode on the slang for insects, local dialect for insects, oh. because they're fascinating. But a Bishibani bee is a ladybird in some parts of Britain, which is gorgeous. Oh. And he also mentioned a hodmadod, and a hodmadod is a garden snail which I love. So to add to Stephen's word, I'm going to give you something which is very specific, but it just amused me. It's very important to um, those who do it. Autotomy, not autonomy, but autotomy. And that is the casting off of a limb or other part of the body by an animal under threat, such as a lizard. So they simply discard part of their body so they can make an escape. Wouldn't that be useful to have? as a human attribute. Very good. Is the word for discarding your skin, if you're a snake, to slough it? Oh, yes, you can slough to it. slough your skin. Yes, yes. And, and how do you spell slough 
in that context? I that's a very good point. I would have said S L O U G H. Yeah, like slough. Um while you're giving me your um poem, I will look that up and I'll tell you at the end. You'll have to be quite quick, because I've chosen a very short poem this week. I thought, oh, I go banging on some weeks with very long poems. Let me come up with something short and sweet. And I flicked open Carol Morgano's charming The Patter of Poetry, her little anthology, and came across this poem, which is simply called In My Mind. If instead of feeling jolly, you are full of melancholy, don't go wishing such a lot you were somebody you're not. Why not thank your lucky star? You are simply who you are. Oh, isn't that, I don't know, that sounds like a song lyric. Well, it could be. Maybe, maybe it yeah. is. Set it to music. Make a fortune. Um, why not? Yeah, and I think, yeah, why, why not? Anyway, uh, look out for Carol Magano if you want to turn that into a song. I expect on the <laughs> on her book you can get uh, get hold of her. Perfect. Um, just to say, slough is either S-L-O-U-G-H, which is the standard form, or the dialect form is slough with a double F. So we were both right. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. Please keep on listening to us and keeping us company. We absolutely love to have you with us. And uh, there is also the Purple Plus Club for some ad-free listening and some extra episodes should you be interested on words and language. It's where we let our hair down a little bit. Those of us that have hair, and I'm <laughs> about to mention somebody who definitely does, because I'm going to tell you that Something Rhymes With Purple is a Sony Music Entertainment production produced by Naya Deo, with additional production from Naomi Oiku, Hannah Newton, Chris Skinner, Poppy Thompson, and... But also Harriet. Harriet Wells is with us oh, today. Of course. Oh, Harriet Wells. These are people from yesterday. They've come back. People can't stay away way from something rhymes with purple you can actually hear her in the background and she's wearing what look like dungarees but that's not oh we love dungarees um, who else have we got i think you've mentioned everybody bar one person who presumably is the oh. suite individual to which you were to whom you were referring um because he is back and we don't know how long for but uh we would very much like him to stay it is of course gully 